Welcome to your presentation on strengths, needs, attitudes, preferences, and temperaments, otherwise known as SNAPT. This is Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com slash counselor toolbox to register. In this presentation, we're going to explore the concept of SNAPT. Review the different learning styles a little bit. There's a whole different presentation on learning styles. We'll identify the characteristics of each dimension of temperament, discuss the levels of Maslow's hierarchy and how that applies to people's needs, and identify other characteristics which may yield specialized needs. So SNAP. SNAP stands for Strengths, Needs, Attitudes, and Preferences. Strengths are the tools that people already have that have worked for them in the past at least a little bit. Now, these strengths may not have been 100% effective, but we can use those and build upon those in order to help them strengthen their strengths, if you will. Needs are what we need. There's a difference between needs and wants. You know, you may want a lot of things, but there are only a few things that you really need. And some of those things require accommodations. Um, And we're going to talk about what that may mean. You know, for example, if you need to have some quiet time when you work, you need to make accommodations so you can make sure you get quiet time if you have difficulty filtering out external stimuli. Attitudes are basically what you think, what motivates you to get things done. And your preferences include your learning style and your temperament. Your learning style is how you best take in information and actually learn stuff. Go figure. And your temperament talks about um, your innate tendencies for how you like your environment, what kind of information you pay attention to, what's meaningful, and basically how you structure your time and your time management style. So strengths are the things the client is good at. And we want to look at these in terms of transferability. If someone is a really good communicator, that's awesome because that means they'll probably have success in relationships. But if they're a good communicator, that can also transfer into the workplace. It can also transfer into writing effective change plans. Those skills, those strengths that a person has can be used for a lot of different things. If someone is good at detailed-oriented projects, you know, you want to look at, okay, if they, they're really good at building things and focusing on the details. For me, I could never be a carpenter because I cut things at a kind of a good enough level, not down to a sixteenth of an inch level. That's just how I function, and it's really hard for me to be that exacting. Um, so you want to look at what skills this, someone has that can transfer into helping them achieve their goals. Strengths are how the client learns best and has coped in the past. If someone learns best by discussing information, by applying information, then let's encourage them to participate in support groups. Let's encourage them to do workbooks. Let's encourage them to apply the information that we're talking about to their current life. Strengths also give the client hope because it's something that they already do And they can say, yeah, I already know how to do that. So that gives me hope that I may be able to do what I need to do in the future. And it's what the client already knows about. For example, the condition. If we're talking about depression, if the client already knows a lot about depression, then that's a strength. 
that they already know about recovery methods for depression. That's a strength. And most clients have at least a general idea about what does and does not work for him or her, which is a strength. Why is that a strength? Because it helps us narrow down what our focus is going to be. There are so many different options, so many different causes of depression, so many different recovery methods, that if the person knows generally what makes his or her depression better or worse, then we can focus there instead of having to try to sort through a haystack to find the needle. Needs are those things a person, guess what, needs in order to be happy, healthy, and sober. Emotional needs. We all need to feel happy and content and efficacious. Efficacious means that we feel that we can accomplish things that we set our mind to. So we feel competent. Um, Everyone has those emotional needs. Those go along with self-esteem. Our mental and cognitive needs talk about what we need in order to best learn, what kind of information we need. And that can be everything from the language that it's presented in to how it's presented. My daughter is dyslexic, so there are certain accommodations we have to make when she is learning, especially when she's reading, um, in order to help her get that information basically off the page and into her mind. Learning needs to understand the condition and interventions. So we need to help people figure out how are they going to best learn about whatever their condition or conditions are. And I use the term condition loosely. That can mean relationship problems. That can mean communication issues. That can mean depression, anxiety, addiction, cancer. What we want to do is figure out how can we best get the necessary information to this person about the issue that they're dealing with and about interventions to deal with that issue so they can start becoming educated and empowered to make decisions that are effective for them. And physical needs include assistive devices, glasses, hearing aids. Uh, Like I said with my daughter with dyslexia, she needs to have uh, everything that she reads. If she reads it on a computer, which is a lot harder for her, she needs to have double spacing between the lines because when the lines are crammed together, she has a hard time actually reading what's there. So understanding what people need in order to most effectively function. Frequent breaks. Not everybody needs frequent breaks, but some people do. So if someone needs frequent breaks to either process information or, for example, at work, if they need frequent breaks in order to sit down because they've got back problems, That's a physical need that we need to attend to. And we need to take that into consideration when we're looking at what kind of jobs might be a good fit for this person. If they're going to have to be on their feet all the time, are they going to be able to take frequent breaks? And other physical needs may include medications. That can be psychotropic medications like antidepressants or pain medications, arthritis, cholesterol. There's lots of meds out there. Uh, But what do they need in order to be healthy? Because part of happy, healthy, and sober is obviously healthy. And part of happy is not just emotionally happy. It means achieving goals in multiple areas of life, work, home, family, relationships. There's a lot more to life than just recovery. Social needs. We all need friends. Some people do really well with a couple of friends. Some people have a lot of acquaintances and really thrive off the energy of interacting with lots of people. 
and they need to have an understanding of healthy relationships. In order to form a healthy relationship, you need to know what constitutes one. Environmental needs include safety, temperature, comfort, time of day, transportation, and child care. So safety needs. If someone doesn't like to be surprised, a lot of times, and I mean, most people don't like to be surprised, but some people tend to be more on edge if they can't see the entrances and exits or if they have a window behind them. So in order to accommodate those environmental needs, how can you adjust the environment so the person feels safer? Temperature. I've mentioned before that I get cold really easy, but I also get hot really easily. So figuring out how I can accommodate that no matter where I am. I bring a jacket wherever I am, and I tend to dress lightly so when I get hot, I can take off my jacket and maybe another layer and be more comfortable. Comfort also applies to things like desk chairs. If you've got uh, low back problems, making sure you've got good lumbar support. If the lighting is not correct, we want to make sure that people are not using extra stress or creating pain or extra distress by being uncomfortable. The time of day is important. We all have times of day where we're more focused and prefer to work. I'm a morning person. I know people who don't even really start getting out of their fog until four in the afternoon. And while I don't understand it, I say kudos to them because they're the yin to my yang. Transportation. If you can't get from point A to point B, it's going to make it harder to get to your doctor's appointments, to get to your recovery meetings, to get to your job, to pick your kids up from school. So transportation really is a need that we need to consider. And child care. If someone is working and they don't have child care, it makes it very difficult. If they don't have good child care where they can feel confident that their child is safe and well cared for, it's going to add extra stress and probably um, contribute to distress and maybe relapse. So we need to look at what are people's needs globally, emotionally, mentally, socially, physically, and environmentally. In addition to their needs that we've talked about, we need to understand how they learn, how they best take in information. Do they, can they hear something one time and they've got it? That's an auditory learner. Do they see something or read it one time and they've got it? That's a visual learner. A kinesthetic learner will learn best if they actually do it. Most people are a combination of two or all three. For example, I tend to be more visual kinesthetic. I can read things really well. I can remember things that I read really well. But I also like to apply it and practice it and manipulate the information. If I'm learning how to drive somewhere, if I sit in the passenger seat while we're driving somewhere, I'm not going to remember a daggum thing. I have to actually do it in order to develop some muscle memory and actually remember the cue points. Um, so I know for me, I'm a visual kinesthetic learner. Auditory kind of falls to the back, back burner when I'm learning things. Um, and then how you process information. Once you get all that information in your head, how do you process it? Do you take it all in and then take a break so you can synthesize it and have an aha moment? Or as each piece comes in, are you adding it to the puzzle? Uh, think about when you do puzzles. When I do puzzles, I do the frame first, 
And then I create little piles of like pieces. You know, it looks like this will form the flower. It looks like this will form the puppy. It looks like this will form whatever. And then I try to put them together. I'm a reflective learner. I take everything and I kind of group it. And then I take a moment to reflect and synthesize. Active learners do it as they go along. They'll just pick up a piece and go, well, I think it should probably go here. And finally, conceptualization. Sequential versus global. I'm a global learner. I need to have an overview. My daughter laughs because we went to see Minions, and I didn't know what the movie was about. And she's like, yeah, Mommy was about to lose her crap. She was sitting in the movie theater trying to look up on IMDb what Minions was about before the movie started because she needed to have an overarching concept. And she thinks that's the funniest thing in the world, obviously. But <laughs> it was true, unfortunately. Uh, I will be the one that will read the table of contents of a book before I read it. I will read the back cover before I buy it. Uh, sequential learners, they're happy just knowing what's going to be in this chapter. And then they'll figure out how the, the rest of the stuff tacks on as they go. I have a hard time organizing information if I don't have the big picture first. So we want to present information so people hear it, they see it, and they apply it. As we do that, we want to take care to take breaks periodically to let them reflect on it, maybe do a worksheet, maybe just think about it for a minute or apply it to a scenario to make sure that your reflective learners have had a chance to process it. And then you want to really present the big, big picture first, but at the end, you also want to summarize and go, okay, today we were learning about this particular topic, and we covered these particular skills. Um, tell me two ways that this may apply to you next week, and then ask your client to answer that question. It will help solidify everything for him or her. Then we move to attitudes. This is what motivates people. What are their attitudes about themselves? If they feel like they can do it, they feel like they can accomplish it, they think something's a challenge, those are positive motivating attitudes. If they feel like they're going to fail, if they feel like it's not worth the effort, then those are unmotivating attitudes. What are their attitudes about others? A lot of times, you know, there are things that we do that we need help with because we can't do everything. But if you have a poor attitude about others, you don't think they're actually going to help out at all. Think back to when you had to do group projects in high school or college. I always dreaded group projects because there would be six of us and usually four would just kind of coast and then there would be two of us doing the majority of the work. Uh, if that's your attitude, then you are going to dread working with other people and you're going to try to do it yourself. Now, in retrospect, you know, maybe if I would have had more information about their learning styles and what would have motivated them, we could have engaged them better. But that wasn't my target at that point as a group member. I just wanted to get it done and get an A on it and be done with it. Their attitudes about the condition or the target issue. If they think it's hopeless, they're not going to be very motivated. If they think there are exciting opportunities for change and they think they can accomplish it, then they're going to be excited, which is why we need to make sure as coaches and clinicians, we put in frequent small successes. You know, staying clean for a day, um, 
reducing your crying sessions so you're only crying a little bit, you know, for 10 minutes once today instead of every hour. We want to make sure they see small improvements and they give themselves credit for that. A willingness to try and learn new things. They were doing the best they could with the tools they had at that point in time, and it wasn't working. So now they've come to us, you know, maybe they've gone through treatment or they've gone through self-help. They, they're at a point where they know kind of what direction they want to go, and they just need somebody to help them implement the plan. And they come to a coach and we say, okay, let's figure out how you're going to enhance the strengths that you have and look for some new tools that you may need to learn. And we'll point you in the direction of resources to learn those tools. We'll help you practice and do all that kind of stuff. So that's wonderful. But the client needs to be willing and not go, well, I already tried that. If you start running into yes buts and I already did that and it didn't work, then you want to turn it back around on the client and ask them, what is it you think would help? Or in what way can we get around this stuck point? Interventions in recovery, what their attitudes are about those interventions in recovery. Some people will be like, I'm not going to call myself an addict every day. That's just not what I'm going to do. And some people will take the other stance and say, I need to remind myself every day that I'm an addict. Depending on your point of view is going to really reflect on which one of those that you adhere to. I want to know what my client's attitudes are about the concept of being an addict and the disease concept versus the cognitive concept. I will not go to those meetings. I had a client come in one time and she was adamant. Oh my gosh. She didn't know me from Adam's house cat and she came in and she sat down. We were five minutes into the um, assessment and I had asked her whether she'd ever been to 12 step meetings because that's a question on our assessment. And she went off on this diatribe of how she doesn't go to those meetings. She's not going to go to those meetings. I can't make her go to those meetings, and those meetings are stupid. And I think there was more to it than that, and I just sat there patiently listening, and I'm like, okay, what are you going to do instead? And she sat there sort of dumbfounded for, you know, five or ten seconds because nobody had ever responded that way. Usually the response was, well, you have to go to those meetings, my response was, well, if you're not going to do it, what are you going to do instead? We need to find a way to develop social support for you. So how can you do that that's going to work for you? The concept that everybody relapses, addiction, mental health, regardless, if you believe that everybody relapses and that's your attitude, then does that set you up and kind of give you an out for relapsing? I don't know. That's something to talk about with your client. What is their attitude towards relapse? What does relapse mean? Is relapse a necessary part of recovery? And what do you do if relapse happens? Another topic that comes up a lot in addiction recovery is with people who believe they need medication-assisted therapy or medication-assisted recovery, such as Suboxone, Methadone, um, and even antidepressants um, and some of those medications. Now, whether or not your client does or does not need them, that's not for me to say. That's between them and their doctor. But I do want to know what their attitudes are towards the medication, why they think they need it, what they think it provides, so I can better understand their attitude toward recovery 
and it may provide me some insight into what some of their concerns are about the recovery process. Decisional balance. We've talked about this in different activities. We've talked about this in different classes, and it will keep coming up. This is one of the best ways to help people increase motivation. You want to help them look at the benefits of the old way. And if you start out with this, they kind of look at you like you're crazy um, because most people don't ask them, well, why? what was the benefit you were getting out of smoking weed? We need to know that because it was rewarding. If we don't figure out what function it was serving, we can't figure out a different way to accomplish that same goal. So what were the benefits to the old way? We need to eliminate as many of the benefits as possible or replace them with healthier healthier alternatives, which is the red means stop and the green means go in this particular chart. So for the red, we want to eliminate or replace the benefits of the old way. And going down to the other corner, we want to eliminate or replace the concerns about change. Concerns I have about changing or my negative attitudes. When people go on a diet, one of the concerns they have about eating this new way is they're not going to be able to have their favorite foods anymore. You know, there's definitely something to consider. So how can you make that less of a concern? How can you make that work for you so it doesn't end up uh, sabotaging the changes you're trying to make? Then we want to look at the benefits to the new way. You know, this is going to be hard. It's going to be hard work. I'm not saying that it won't be. However, what are the benefits? Why is it worth all of this effort? What's going to be different in your life that makes it all worth the effort? And then increasing people's awareness of the drawbacks to the old way. The things that I don't like about the old way or staying the same would be, um, and the reasons why I need to change. So asking them these questions, having them reflect upon them, I generally give the decisional balance exercise as a homework assignment, and then we process it in the next session because I want people to really have a chance to put in as much detail as possible. And preferences. People's temperament impacts their strengths, needs, attitudes, and preferences. Temperament is comprised of basically four dimensions, and I don't want you to make it more complicated than it really has to be. I mean, you can get way down into the weeds, but let's just stay up here right now. The first component deals with their environment and energy and how they engage with people. The second component is how they conceptualize things, if they focus on details or the big picture. The third component is what motivates them, and it makes things meaningful. Is it facts and details and logic or what makes them feel happy and what seems to be the best as far as relationships are concerned? And then the fourth dimension focuses on time management and structure. How do they go about organizing their life and getting things done? Do they like day planners? Do they like structure? Or do they like spontaneity and kind of flying by the seat of their pants? These are sort of innate temperaments. These are innate traits that we're not going to change, so we need to figure out how to help people work with them. Ultimately, they are going to gravitate toward their preferences regardless of whether we want them to or not. So we need to help them figure out how to make it work for them because one type is not better or worse. It's just different. The cool thing is if you take two people who are on opposite ends of the spectrum and you put them together, they can 
either fight like cats and dogs or balance each other out. So remember, the overarching concept is on a continuum. One end of the continuum is not better than the other. So being structured versus being spontaneous, not better or worse, it's just different. Most people are somewhere in the middle. So you'll go through some of the characteristics we're going to talk about and you'll go, well, I've got a little bit of that, but then I have a lot more of this. So which am I? And the answer is both. But being aware of your preferences is what's really important in reducing stress in your life. So how can we apply this? We can apply this to improving communication, increasing motivation, helping people select effective interventions, and relapse prevention planning. The first dimension, how people prefer their environment and interact with people. Extroverts tend to be expansive. They're just wide open. They're easy to get to know. They love meeting new people. Figure things out while they're talking. Often enjoy background noise like TV and radio. They're more aware of what's going on around them than inside them. Don't mind interruptions and are often considered good talkers. You know, these are the people I'm thinking of as teachers because they're in the classroom. They've got interruptions. They've got noise going on. They're constantly aware of what's going on around them. You feel like they have eyes in the back of their heads. Um, And a lot of times they have to figure things out while they're talking and kind of on the spot. When we're talking about recovery, knowing that extroverts draw energy from other people, they get energized by being in a classroom, by being around a lot of other people, and they love meeting new people. So this is going to be good. Any type of support group, they're going to feel right at home in. Um, They're going to have a really easy time making connections with um, other people that are out there. And they just, they have a lot of people that they consider friends. One of the challenges in recovery is the fact that they know what's going on around them rather than inside them. So they're attuned to what's going on in the environment, and inside they may be getting stressed, they may be getting bored, they may be getting tired. Something or anything can be going on inside them, and they may not notice it because they're so focused on everything else. It's like when you take a kid to the zoo for the first time. They get exhausted by the end of the day, and they start melting down, but they don't realize it because they're so stimulated by everything that's going on around them. So in recovery, the extrovert needs to make sure to take time out a couple of times a day, and I've suggested it before at every mealtime, to do a body scan, to do a uh, mindfulness scan, just to make sure that they know how they're doing inside, emotionally, mentally, physically, um, and and. Make sure that there's no weaknesses coming up. Introverts are intense and passionate. These are the people that can dive into something and work for 16 hours straight. They may be more difficult to get to know and have to exert effort to meet new people. A lot of times they only have a few close friends because it's a lot of effort to meet new people. They take in information and like to figure things out before they talk. So if you know somebody who will take in a lot of information and then they'll go out on a run or they'll go sit out on the porch or something while they process it, they want to figure it out before they talk. Extroverts like to talk it out. Um, they prefer, introverts prefer peace and quiet as opposed to background noise. They need to be able to focus. They're more likely to know what's going on inside them than rather what rather than what's going on around them. 
dislike being interrupted and are good listeners. So an introvert is going to be um, one of the people that you think of as being quieter. They're not going to be the life of the party. They're going to sit back and observe, and they're more aware of what's going on inside. So in recovery, we want to make sure that they're also paying attention to what's going on around, around them so they don't get caught in a situation they don't want to be in. As far as motivation, well, let's go back to introverts for a second. Um, some of your support group meetings, like your big 12-step meetings, are going to be overwhelming to the introvert. They'll do better in big book studies or in small support groups with maybe four or five people or online support groups where it's they can hang back for a second and kind of get to know people and find a group that's small and, and seems to be more in alignment with who they are. But it takes them time to kind of warm up. Motivation-wise, extroverts are motivated by energy. They're motivated by being around other people. They're motivated by activity. Uh, when I go to the gym, I get really motivated because there's other people around. The TVs are on. There's all kinds of stuff buzzing around. And that gets me energized. Someone who is an introvert may get overwhelmed by all that stimulation. When we talk about thinking versus feeling, um, we're really talking about how people are motivated. Thinkers are motivated by facts. They respond easily to people's thoughts as opposed to their feelings. They want to apply objective principles. They can assess logical consequences. Think it's more important to be just than merciful. Think about things through a true-false lens instead of a good-bad lens. So like a legal lens instead of an ethical lens, maybe. And may think that those who are sentimental take things too personally. Thinkers may argue both sides of an issue from mental stimulation. Think attorney. Attorneys really like um, justice, responding to thoughts, being objective, and arguing both sides of a situation to kind of see both perspectives. When you're dealing with somebody in recovery who responds this way, you want to encourage them to look at the logical consequences of what they're thinking about doing or the choices that they're making. You want to give them objective principles to learn about and to apply. And you may also have them play devil's advocate, have them argue both sides of an issue in order to come to a conclusion. If your person is more on the feeling side, they think about things like care, compassion, what makes them feel good, what makes them happy. They respond to people's values, and they want everybody around them to be happy. Um, they tend to be very sentimental, and they're good at assessing the human impact of things. They believe it's more important to be caring and merciful and look at things through a good and bad lens. They may think that those preferring, preferring objectivity are insensitive. And really prefer to agree with those around them. So if you're dealing with somebody who's a feeler, they're going to be more motivated if they're surrounded by people in recovery who are like-minded. Um, they like to agree. They don't like to cause waves. They like everybody to be happy. So we want to make sure that they're in an environment that encourages happiness and contentment. Now, sensing versus intuitive uh, refers to how people deal with information. 
Sensing people are practical, realistic, detail-oriented, would rather do than think. And they may see, see the details and ignore the big picture. When we're talking about recovery, they may get so caught up in the details of what they need to do in order to recover that they miss the big picture of they're supposed to be having fun and having a more pleasurable, happy, stress-free life. So we need to get them to stop, step back, and look and reassess the big picture regularly. What's going on in the big picture? Okay, you had this little slip up, um, but in the big picture, how are things going? They also believe if it isn't broken, don't fix it. So if you're trying to get people to change something they don't see a problem with, you're going to be kind of banging your head into a wall. Focus on things that they're motivated to change. The person who is intuitive is more of the imaginative dreamer. They think about the possibilities. I tend to be more on the intuitive side. I love to write grants. I like to think about the big picture and live in the world of possibilities. Anything I see, I think can be improved upon. And whether I have the skills to do it or not is, you know, up for debate sometimes. But I always look for how could you make this more energy efficient? How could you make this easier to do? How could you make this run more effectively? I like to focus on complicated abstract problems. And I see the big picture, but I'll admit I can miss the details. So again, when you're working with someone in recovery, if they're intuitive, they may see the big picture about, I need to go do things that make me happy. Well, yes, that's wonderful. However, we also need to pay attention to the details of, are you doing your mindfulness scans? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you making sure that you're getting your basic needs met? The intuitive person can focus too much on the future and possibilities and forget about the present. So again, in recovery, it's important for if you're working with someone who's an intuitor, they're always talking about what they're going to do in six months or when they get their kids back or sometime in the future. And we want to make sure that we acknowledge that and re reinforce that, but also focus on what are you doing right now that's going to get you closer to that. And finally, judging versus perceiving. This is your structure. These are your spontaneity people versus your day planner people. I'm a day planner person. I like to plan ahead. I thrive on order. I really like to get things done early. I'm the type of person, if a paper was due on Friday, I would have it done on Tuesday because I wouldn't want to have to worry about whether I was going to get it done or the computer would crash or anything like that. I have limits that I work within. and I. I may be hasty in making decisions because I take the information. I'm like, okay, I got what I need. Let's make a decision and let's go. Um, tend to be time and deadline oriented. think those preferring spontaneity are too unpredictable, but they're excellent planners. So in recovery, someone who's a judger is going to be one who is good for helping organize a group. They'll be good at communicating deadlines. They'll be good at laying out goals and interventions. They'll be motivated by structure. Um, however, life isn't always structured. So we need to help these people figure out if life throws you a curveball, how are you going to deal with it? Now, I have a plan A, but I also have a plan B and a plan C most of the time because this helps me plan and be structured when life is not so structured. We want to encourage our clients to do that in recovery. Always have a plan B and a plan C for recovery, for relapse triggers, for anything that might be stressing you out. 
And perceivers, adapt as they go, they're flexible and tolerant, they thrive on spontaneity, get things done at the last minute, depending on a spurt of energy. They're always craving more information, but may fail to make decisions in a timely manner. Uh, they're good at handling unplanned events, but may not make effective choices among the possibilities. Now, one of the people I worked for for almost 15 years was very much this way. Um, he was able to deal with anything that you threw at him, but if he had to make a decision, I always knew that I would talk to him about it on Thursday if I wanted an answer on Monday, because he'd have to consider all the different permutations and possibilities and get more information. Uh, that was the way he functioned. Um, when things happened, when grants came up, it would be instead of we've got two months to get this done, uh, we've got two weeks to get this grant written, so everybody plan on working late for the next two weeks. Things were getting done at the last minute or depending on a spurt of energy or whenever he ran across them. It was like, ah, oh, sure, there's plenty of time. Let's get it done. In recovery, we need to make sure that people don't always fall back on thinking that there's plenty of time because sometimes there's not. They need to have some structure in their recovery plan, whether it's making sure that they're doing fun things, eating well, getting enough sleep. If they're in recovery from an addiction, going to a meeting or doing something with sober social supports is going to be important, and they need to include that. Whereas a judger, um, somebody who's structured might use a day planner, somebody who's a perceiver will do better with to-do lists, maybe a daily to-do list or even a weekly to-do list. I have to get all these things done this week, and, you know, I'll figure it out as I go. Encouraging people to be aware and work within their temperaments instead of trying to be something they're not is going to go a long way towards helping them achieve sustained recovery. A client with depression and a history of addiction wants to, quote, stay in recovery. So what do you need to know about his strengths, needs, attitudes, and preferences? One of the things you want to know is what has worked and what hasn't worked. When you talk about needs, you know, remember, it's not just your emotional needs. What do you need mentally? What do you need uh, to help you learn best? What do you need to stay on track? What are your motivating factors? What are your attitudes about what your options are? And how can we make this work within your personality, within your temperament, within your preferences? Treatment involves helping people learn what's causing their distress and tools to manage it. Effective change involves helping people maximize their strengths, consider their needs and motivations, address their attitudes, both positive and negative. We want to enhance the positive and deal with the negative, and work in harmony with their own preferences instead of trying to be something that they're not. As a coach or a clinician, it's important to pay attention to the potential pitfalls of your treatment or discharge plan based on the person's strengths, needs, attitudes, and preferences. A lot of times, if people relapse, we can find out that we missed something in our assessment, learn from that, adjust the treatment plan, and move on.